Another exciting announcement is that Solar Saber reached out to me on Instagram and she let me know that she liked the way that we covered the material and that really meant a lot to hear and have it confirmed that an actual furry thought we covered it well. Um, Like we always say at the beginning of each podcast, it's our goal to gain perspective on the remarkable world around us and that includes countercultures and religions and fandoms and anything you can think of. So having that confirmed really made me feel super happy. Um, She also wanted to give us an update that I guess the biggest fur con is now the Midwest Fur Fest. Um, It used to be Anthrocon, but it got surpassed by Midwest Fur Fest to be the largest convention in the world for furries. So I really appreciate her reaching out and uh, giving us that update. And she also like shouted us out on Instagram. She's an amazing artist um, in the furdom. So I would recommend going and checking out her Instagram. And if you want to learn more about the community, definitely check out her YouTube channel. Thanks again, Solar Saber. We are two friends trying to gain perspective on the remarkable world around us. I'm Jet Jones. I'm Mackenzie DeMaio. And this is Friends Fascinated. If you like what you hear today, don't forget to review and subscribe. This episode, we are going to do a deep dive into E.B. Cooper. We are extra prepared this week to talk about our topic because we just got done watching a movie related to the subject called Without a Paddle. Yes, this was a movie that was one of my husband's favorite growing up, and I was talking about possibly doing some, like, missing persons cases on the podcast, and he offered up this suggestion of the story of D.B. Cooper, because it was um, something that was in his favorite movie, or at least touched on, Um, so the Without a Paddle movie was something he grew up watching, and it touches on the story that we're going to talk about today. And I had never heard of this. I knew about the movie, but I'd never watched it. I didn't know the premise of it. I just heard about it. Mm -hmm. And so I had no concept of the story at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's a fun intro to it. It's it's a comedy. So let's be clear. It's very not serious and very (laughs) inaccurate. Yes, it's not a documentary per se, but um, it'd be fun if it was. (laughs) Yeah, it would. Uh, so today we're going to go into the details about the story of D.B. Cooper and why he was so infamous because in the movie, they're on this big hunt to find D.B. Cooper mm-hmm. and his lost treasure. Mm-hmm. And so um, after watching that movie, we got super curious about what the actual story was and we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, and part of our episode prep was to watch the movie, so now we are well prepared to talk about the subject. Yep. So... The movie, um, the reason that there is treasure, the short version is a guy hijacked an airplane in the 70s. Yep. And so um, they call him D.B. Cooper, which is a pseudonym. It's it's not necessarily his real name. Mm-hmm. We're fairly certain it's not. Well, because but... as we know, with any criminal, they're not going to be like, hi, I'm exactly who I say I am. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and this was back in 1971. So airport security was very different and yeah. technology wasn't. Pretty sure you could buy not... a plane ticket with cash and no ID to get it, yeah, on a plane. exactly. Because they were like, oh, you just, it's like getting on a taxi yep. or something. Mm-hmm. So um, he was given, I think they technically said the name was Dan Cooper, but it was misheard as D.B. Cooper. Mm. So on the eve of Thanksgiving in the year of 1971, so that was November 24th, just this, you know, seemingly unassuming 
middle-aged man. He I mean, identif- he could be traveling for the holidays, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> a lot, a ton of people travel the day before any holiday like that. And so he identified himself as Dan Cooper. He was at the Portland International Airport. He, as as you assumed, he used cash to purchase his ticket. Uh, just a one-way ticket on the flight 305, which was a 30-minute flight to Seattle from Portland. He boarded a 727-100 airplane and sat near the back of the cabin. Um, He was described as a quiet man wearing a business suit, just a black tie and a white shirt, mid-40s. He ordered a bourbon and soda while waiting to take off. (laughs) (laughs) He knows what he likes. Yeah, he uh, very quickly wanted something to drink. The flight was only about a third full. I think it said 36 passengers. Mm -hmm. And it it departed on time from Portland at 2.50 p.m. Pacific time. Shortly after takeoff, he handed the note to the flight attendant. Uh, Her name was Florence Schaffner. And she just put it in her purse. She just assumed it was... A guy hitting on her. Yeah, she just thought it was some guy giving her uh, his phone number. And so she just was like, okay, and just put it in her purse and didn't look at it. And so he uh, leaned over to her and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Bum, bum, bum. I'm just imagining like it being in this situation <laughs> i'm the type of person where if they just did it like if that happened to me i'd be like i can't do it now now i can't do what i have yeah. to do and just yeah. like okay i guess i'm not doing this today or something yeah. well first of all it would be like a ego check she'd be like oh he wasn't hitting on me he's trying to threaten me very good point you have to she- accept that fact and uh dig yeah. through your purse and try to find that she probably again. felt silly <laughs> Um, but she doesn't remember the exact wording of the note because he ended up reclaiming that note later. But she recalled that it said basically that he has a bomb in his briefcase. And after reading the note, he told her to sit next to him. So she did as he asked. And then she quietly asked to see the bomb, which I thought was a smart move because you don't just want to assume, oh, he has a bomb. I'm going to do whatever yeah, he says. And freak everybody out on exactly, the plane. Because yeah. he could just be a liar yep (laughs) and so um sure enough he opened his briefcase long enough for her to see eight red cylinders attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery so i would see that and assume yeah that looks like it could (laughs) blow something up yep uh yeah so he closed his briefcase and then stated that his demands were two hundred thousand dollars in negotiable american currency four parachutes so two primaries and two reserves. That's a lot of parachutes. Yeah, I'm confused as to why he needed them, mm-hmm. honestly. Uh, he also wanted a fuel truck on standby in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Uh, and then as far as the $200,000, if you adjust that for inflation today, that's $1.26 million. Dang. That's so much money. That is so much money. And so the flight attendant conveyed the instructions to the pilots in the cockpit. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. The pilot, uh, William Scott, contacted the Seattle-Tacoma Airport, their air traffic control, which then in turn informed local and federal authorities. So the other 36 passengers were given false information that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of minor mechanical difficulties. Mm, When I read that too, I was like, no, I've been on a plane where they've told me there's minor mechanical issues before. (laughs) See, that actually occurred to me too. I was like, Uh... I can never... Just trust, like yeah. trust minor issues because someone might be about to blow up my airplane. Yeah. So yeah, that was pretty unsettling. So the airline was Northwest Orient Airlines. The airline's president, Donald Nyrop, authorized the payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. I thought that was pretty cool of him. Yeah, I was a little surprised. Yeah, because normally I feel like from what I've seen, at least in movies with people who are holding something up hijacking Mm -hmm. something and they have 
terms, usually it's already the FBI is involved and they're mm-hmm. figuring out how to distribute that type of money rather than like literally just the like owner or whatever of this company or mm-hmm. leader is going to offer up that much money for his crew. I mean, that's pretty dang cool. Well, and my thought was that, oh, yeah, they would say they were cooperating, but then the second they touch down in Seattle, like, he gets arrested or Mm -hmm. something. But as far as I understand it, that's not what happened. But, yeah, he was just like, yep, okay, we'll do that. Yeah. But the aircraft ended up circling the Puget Sound Airport for two hours to allow Seattle's police and the FBI enough time to assemble the parachutes, the ransom money, and to mobilize emergency personnel. So can you imagine being on a flight that's supposed to be 30 minutes and then you're just... (laughs) Technical difficulties make you loop for two two hours. hours. I think I would be suspicious. I feel like you'd have to realize, oh, we're just turning in circles. Uh yeah that would be so weird i would be thinking the wheels must not work the wheels must not work and then you could never <gasps> land safely. oh that's true because like that's oh. the only reason i could think of why they would circle right that's true if you're on why wouldn't you just land yeah you'd think if you were having mechanical issues you'd want to land as soon as possible yeah. oh scary. so scary but the flight attendant actually noted that he seemed familiar with the area just based on comments that he made about oh that's tacoma because of xyz and so he knew the area So he must have been a local. Uh, And also he was described as being calm, polite, and well-spoken. He wasn't nervous and he seemed nice. He was never cruel or nasty to anyone, which is very different from the stereotype of someone who would do something like this. Um, They're normally enraged and hardened criminals and this, but he was Mm -hmm. just a guy in a suit just being very polite. Um, He even ordered a second bourbon and soda and then paid his drink tab. (laughs) Who ransoms $200,000 and then pays for their drink? I mean... I usually pick up a tab if I feel like I have a lot of money coming my way. So Fair enough. Like, well, yeah, and he did offer to give the change to one of the flight attendants. Yeah, have the tip, a couple, like, 10 cents, because this is, like, 1970. So crazy. <laughs> he even offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, just so what crazy. What a kind man. Yeah. So you know accommodating. What? That reminds me of, actually, is an episode that we should do later on on the Stockholm Syndrome. Oh. Um. It, the, it was a similar story to this where there was hostages and negotiations oh. like this, mm-hmm. it, which I did not know was the origin. So we should talk about that. Sometime. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but the FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle banks. They ended up gathering 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, cool. which at first I was like, wait, unmarked? You'd think like you would do anything to track this guy afterwards. But they made microfilm photographs for every single one, Dang. which again made me think, why didn't you use $100 bills <laughs> and take a lot less pictures? Wow, 10,000 photos. Ten- How did they get? Okay, I'm confused. They probably took more than one per photo or something i don't know yeah that's true but yeah so they didn't mark the bills maybe because they thought that seemed too obvious or something but they knew the serial numbers Mm -hmm. so they originally arranged for military issued parachutes but then cooper rejected them and instead he demanded civilian parachutes with manual operated rip cords and the police ended up obtaining those from a local skydiving school which i feel like is our first clue into this type of guy that he knows how to work well, a manual well, parachute that he knows how to yeah parachute first thing but second of all how would he know so specifically that he wouldn't want military mm-hmm. grade he would and want why? like civilian grade mm-hmm. 
Right. And I, you would think a military grade parachute would be better. Maybe well, he just didn't know how to work that one. And or more likely, if you can imagine, That's true. how many hobbyist parachuters do you know, rather than military parachute? Like my dad was a paratrooper, mm-hmm. so I feel like it's way more common, especially in this era, to be a paratrooper. Yeah. In the military, so your experience would be the military. Yeah. So I feel like that would narrow it down even further, right? Yeah. Someone who knows how to operate a civilian parachute. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and if we're looking at, like, clues and things, like, he did pay with cash. And I would imagine in the 70s, I wouldn't think that there would be, like, cameras in airports Mm -hmm. and things, like security cameras and that type of technology. Mm -hmm. So it'd be really hard to figure out who this guy was. Yeah, it's crazy. Very. So that's some clues to who he was, but he obviously had a bigger mission in mind. Mm -hmm. So after two hours of circling, eventually he learned that his demands were met and he decided at 5.39 p.m. to land the aircraft at the Seattle-Tacoma airport. He went around the plane and ordered everyone on there to close all of the windows on the plane to avoid police snipers. Which oh. is, I feel like it's so thoughtful. Like you would have to, th- I mean, I guess it makes sense that you would want to be hidden, but I guess I keep going back and forth on believing on how like calculated or mm. not he is. Well, and the, and the fact that he remained calm during all of this is just insane to Seriously. me. Seriously. Then after they had landed, Northwest's Orient Seattle operations manager, Al Lee, approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer. Mm. He delivered the cash-filled bag and parachutes to the flight attendant on the aircraft. Once the delivery was complete, Cooper ordered all the passengers and Schaffner, the other flight attendant, and the senior flight attendant, Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. During this time, the plane was being refueled, so one of his demands was to have a fuel truck waiting for him because he had it planned out enough to know that he would need to refuel once he got there to have the second leg of his journey Mm -hmm. continue on the hijacking. So after the refueling, he outlined his plan to the cockpit crew, a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. Which I'd imagine they'd have to keep speed up pretty high because this is a commercial airline. It's not just some jet flying around. Well, and if it was a third full with 36 people, it could fit 100 people. Yeah. That's a big airplane. Definitely. Um, So this speed was approximately 100 knots or 385 kilometers per hour for our European folks (laughs) or all the other world. And for us Americans, that would be uh, (laughs) 115 miles per hour. Wow. Um, And then at the maximum altitude of 10,000 feet. And he further specified that the landing gear to remain deployed in the takeoff landing position, the wing flaps to be lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin to remain unpressurized. How would he know some of those details? So that's the thing, like as this goes, and we'll get further into the story later, but I just, you've got to wonder how calculated this guy is Mm -hmm. and And how long he was planning it and oh man yeah the co-pilot william informed cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration which meant a second refueling would be necessary before entering mexico cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on reno nevada as the like next refueling stop which again is like 
holy crap, this guy is so, like, chill. I mm-hmm. mean, grand scheme of things. That he's just, like, making pit stops wherever he's going to get to Mexico. Because, yeah, you'd think he'd be like, oh, I can't risk, like, a second chance of getting Yeah, I would just, like. Arrested. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, well, just fly me somewhere and yeah. I'll do what I can. So, does it say what his long-term goal was? That he just wanted to be, well, I guess he said he wanted parachutes. Mm-hmm. So, I don't so think. he just wanted to get. To this point, to they don't know. Yeah, okay. I didn't know much he shared because he's just like planning it out with these guys, mm-hmm. acting all like like step chill. by step. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, he also wanted the plane's rear exit door open and its staircase extended. Jeez, the whole time. Yeah. So Ooh. he he wanted all of the landing gear down and to coast at one fifteen miles per hour at ten thousand feet. Basically, as low and as slow as possible mm-hmm. with so the doors open time. so he could jump at any time. That's crazy. Which is also interesting because you'd think he want, he he was looking for a bailout plan. Because mm-hmm. even if he, he was planning on jumping out in Mexico or over Mexico, that why would he need all that open now if he knew they needed to stop once? Yeah. So it's kind of weird. I guess yeah. he was just looking for an exit strategy if he needed it. Maybe he didn't want to be trapped essentially yeah i don't know but northwest's home office objected on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the staircase deployed makes sense yeah you want you know whatever smooth surfaces yes, and aerodynamics exactly to get up into the sky um but he counter offered that it was indeed safe but he didn't want to argue the point he just like compromised and said it needs to be lowered once they were in the air so again it's a weird tidbit that he knows so much about planes. Mm-hmm. And I guess, well, let's see. The internet wasn't really that popular. It wasn't. The, it wasn't in people's it, hands. It wasn't in people's, yeah, homes or so, like, workspaces. It would take a lot of time and Like energy. library research. <laughs> unless, like, he must have, I feel like he must have a pilot's license or something. Mm, I actually hadn't thought of that angle because that would explain the parachute knowledge, but not the military knowledge. But, but he would know about knowledge. the refueling and, yeah. like, I don't know, maybe they told him, but he might have known the height he could be at and the speed. But he wouldn't, so if we're just guessing here, he w- it wouldn't make sense for him to be a commercial pilot no. because he could steal his own plane if that were the case. Like, That's true. If he wanted that money, he could be the pilot of a plane and be like, wonder, I'm going to crash this as if it were a missile if you don't send me money. You or- know, they probably have protocols because every pilot flies with a co-pilot. Mm-hmm in that situation i wonder what the protocol is of like they hey go your evil? co-pilot goes rogue yeah like, what do you do Ugh. crazy that is crazy um also the federal aviation association requested a face-to-face meeting with cooper aboard the aircraft which he denied the refueling process took longer than they expected because something was going on with the fuel trucks pumping mechanism but once the refueling had been completed the plane was able to take off again so off to Reno they go. <laughs> Could you imagine being on that plane as what? Who's on the plane left? It's like four or five. It's five, five people, people. Yeah, including him. Yeah, that would be I, crazy. And being told either, hey, you have to go with this guy or being like volunteering mm-hmm. is insane. I, I truly wonder, do you think, or maybe this is covered later, do you know if they ever told the passengers? I feel like they'd have to know eventually. Or they, they learned they through, like, would the news. Because they, they probably didn't tell this. them until they were safely on the ground. Yeah, I bet. Ugh. Scary. 
crazy. But anyway, at about 7.40 p.m., the 727 took off um, back into the air with only five people. So Cooper, two pilots, an engineer, and a flight attendant. So they had two F-106 fighter aircrafts that scrambled from a nearby Air Force base and followed behind the airline. There was one above and one below, both out of Cooper's view. And a total of five aircrafts ended up trailing the hijacked plane. Um, It mentioned one of them had to turn around to refuel, but a total in five had trailed the airplane. And crazy enough, none of the pilots in any of the planes saw him jump or could pinpoint where he could have landed which is just crazy. But if you think about it, even, you know, in the North, the Pacific Northwest at 7 p.m., it's been dark for hours Mm -hmm. in November. So, and who knows if it was like snowing or something. Yeah, and we don't really know the science behind radar and detection within whatever airplanes these are. So we're kind of in the dark about that, I guess. And especially with 70s technology. Yeah, who knows? Like, who knows what they were working with? I mean, mean, someone does, but we sure don't. Mm -hmm. Um, But after takeoff, Cooper told the flight attendant to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. So he wanted basically them not to see or pay attention to what he was doing, I suppose. She saw him tie something around his waist, but that was the only thing she really noticed. But at about 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the aft air stair apparatus so the side door had been activated the crew offered assistance by the aircraft intercom but he curtly refused and so just to so people can have a mental picture of what this is so everyone can imagine what a commercial airplane looks like Mm -hmm. Um, but rather than the staircase being like at the front up by the pilot cockpit this staircase and back door is actually kind of like the butt of the plane it's like way in the back and it's in the middle too so it's not it's not on either side of the plane it's like under the like tail of the plane if that makes sense so that's so at the stair- very very back yes so if you're thinking about how he could jump out of a plane because i mean you could picture jumping out of a side door of a plane it would be a lot mm-hmm. more dangerous especially if you're thinking in front of the wing <laughs> you probably True. wouldn't want to jump out there if you're going 115 miles an hour so in this case the staircase is coming down under the tail of the plane just to picture it that makes sense but the crew noticed a subjective air change or a change in the air pressure indicating that the door had been opened so they could tell that that had happened at about 8:13 p.m the aircraft tail section sustained a sudden upward movement significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight Ugh, that's so spooky which like my first thought was like did he like get caught on the back <laughs> of the airplane i don't think or he what? would make a big difference on the airplane itself yeah but i could imagine the staircase was a pretty big deal probably <laughs> yeah so uh, at approximately 10 15 the aircraft stair was still deployed when they landed in the reno airport Ooh. and there were fbi agents state troopers sheriff deputies and reno police surrounding the jet Uh, It had not yet been determined with certainty if he was on board or not, um, but a quick armed search found that he was absent, which it's probably a good move on his part that he did not wait for them to refuel Mm -hmm. keep going because that time they were definitely ready. Yeah. You know, what was crossing my mind too is, first of all, I have read the story so i know what's going on but i forgot that it wasn't after the second refueling that he jumped out so we've confirmed he wasn't so confident that he thought he could land again and be okay yeah. he was smart enough to be like mm, 
I landed once and tested the FBI. I don't think yeah. I'm going to do that twice. And I am kind of surprised that with the extra two hours that they didn't, Get I guess, arrest here. him yeah. and like go through those steps. I don't know if they were just worried about the passengers and the crew or why they chose to do it that way. But they had to make some quick decisions. Oh, like yeah. I could not imagine having to gather that much money mm-hmm. and supplies. And I think... Actually, we'll get to this later on, but something that's a little bit funny is that when they gathered um, the parachutes, they did make a mistake, but we'll get into that later. Oh, no. (laughs) The other thing that was on my mind about this was, what if, instead of jumping out the plane, he convinced them that he jumped out of the plane? I thought this too. Yes, and that he had like a costume of a (laughs) flight attendant, and he just casually strutted off the plane when he got off at this one, and then he survived with the money bags and got away and people (laughs) thought he jumped out of the plane like a lunatic well that or i was also thinking like what if somehow he remained on the airplane enough to like take off again and i don't know just somehow just like sneak off and never jump off the plane because yeah none of the trailing planes no one saw him jump they knew he lowered the staircase and then there was a two-hour gap between the next time they could prove he was gone. Yeah, that's true. So he could have at any point jumped out of the airplane. And I mean, that's a big area. That's a thousand miles, I think, roughly. Yeah, I actually have a section on that. A precise search area would be difficult to define because even small differences in the estimated aircraft speed or the environmental conditions could have changed Cooper's projected landing considerably. An important variable was the length of time he remained in free fall before pulling his ripcord. Because you can imagine you're going to slow way down That's true. and you're going to coast. But you're going to keep moving forward yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And if there's wind, forget about it. Like Ooh. there's like. Well, and think about the fact that he was jumping out of a plane 10,000 feet. That's three miles. No, <laughs> that's two miles in the air in the dark. <sighs> he was aiming he... a parachute oh in the God. dark. Like this guy. He cray. <laughs> that I is can't crazy. fathom that. And like the Pacific Northwest is large and there's a lot of mountainous areas mm-hmm. and a lot of oh desert areas. Oh my God, I forgot Nevada. about that. There are so many places Just that planes. there aren't like cities and things. So yeah, like cities are well enough lit that he could maybe aim a little, but that would also be kind of dumb. <laughs> but then so, he'd be on But he also foot. could be in a tree. Yeah. Like the, yeah. Oh my Who God. knows? Who knows? And then- no one even knows if he successfully landed at all. <laughs> oh, that reminds me of a joke from Drake and Josh. Yep. You know what I'm talking about? I uh, yes. Where Drake's trying to, like, impress a girl sitting on the couch, and Josh is there, and Drake's going to be going skydiving soon, and he's trying to impress this girl, and he's like, yeah, two-thirds of people don't even make it to the ground. <laughs> and then Josh, like, very upset. He's just like... Then where do they go? (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what that made me think of. Where do they go? It's a good show. Drake and Josh. Drake and Josh is a solid show. Uh, so anyway, yeah, they don't know for sure if he succeeded at opening his parachute, so they can't confirm whether he did fantastic and was a ghost in the night and singing pulled that cord and drifted down. Two hundred thousand dollars richer, or if he stinking sucked and jerked on the cord and nothing ever happened and he never. I would be mad down. if I gave someone two hundred thousand dollars of ransom money and they didn't even use it. <laughs> <laughs> Freaking wasteful. <laughs> 
Um, and then, so as you said, neither of the Air Force fighter pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on their radar, nor did they see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting below, an airborne human figure dressed in all black could easily have gone undetected. Mm. So there's just so much mystery behind it. And like you said, since the window could be so big of when they guessed he got out, Mm -hmm. like who really knows? Well, and the craziest thing about that is that they still haven't found him. And it's been almost 50 years. Mm -hmm. I think it was they closed this case in 2016. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's safe to say it's almost been 50 years. Like they're not gonna like i'd be amazed if they did suddenly find him there's there's some magic in that which i think yeah relates back to the movie we just watched where (laughs) these kids are looking for the the mystery or the the loot of the two hundred thousand dollars or anything with db cooper so it's kind of a fun mystery and it's picked up in pop culture a lot and Mm -hmm. stuff like that so what's crazy is i don't know what your opinion is is on this but for me After doing some reading on this, I was actually surprised how long and how far they took the research on this. Well, yeah, you said that they officially closed the case in 2016. Yeah. That's mind-blowing to me. I figured they would have done 15 years. Yeah, because... And I don't know how that works. I don't know if it just goes cold and it's open forever. I guess not. I don't know. But I feel like we've done less research and, like, FBI investigation on, like, serial killers Mm -hmm. than, like, this one guy... Who like just sneakily jumped out of a plane once with some money, you know? Like it's very like. Well, it's probably because in like if you think about it, it doesn't sound hard to find someone who jumped out of a plane on a specific course. Yeah. But it was. So maybe it's just the fact that it shouldn't like that people didn't think it would be that hard. Mm -hmm. Whereas a serial killer or all kinds of crimes like that without proper evidence like there's nothing you can really do whereas this one it's like okay we just got to cover this one part of this really weird Mm -hmm. terrain and then we'll find footprints or something i don't know something it's crazy so here's the extent that they went cooper's landing zone was within an area on the southernmost outreach of mount st helens a few miles southeast of ariel washington and near lake merwin so again this is pretty estimated because i mean that's a pretty big landscape as well but there's no telling if that is true or not Mm -hmm. so that's a guess um the fbi agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot or by helicopter wow they also went door to door um (laughs) in searches of local farmhouses see if he was hiding out somewhere and other search parties ran patrol boats along lake merwin and yale lake the reservoir immediately to its east there was no trace of Cooper, nor any of the equipment presumed to have been left on the aircraft with him. Man, I hadn't considered the fact that he could have landed in, like, a lake in water yeah. somewhere. Like, ugh. Just, I mean, there, there is so much confusion and yeah. possibility of death to this. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. Like, mm-hmm. he could be on a mountain somewhere. He could be caught in a tree. He could be on a lake. He could be in the middle of a desert. He could have gotten eaten by a bear. He's on foot. Like, he would have to have, like, one of his ransom things should have been and camping supplies because... Well, yeah, because all he had that that they mentioned was a little, like, a normal-sized briefcase, basically. So it's not like he had, Which was full of a bomb. A ton of food. That's true. (laughs) So he didn't have food. He had a bomb. What happened to the bomb? Do you think he had the bomb? He probably didn't take it with him. Do you think it was a real bomb or do you think it was just like a fake looking bomb? <gasps> I mean, he was apparently smart enough that he probably did make a bomb. I would believe it's a real bomb. 
So maybe he jumped out with the bomb and he exploded on impact and died in the Okay, if they couldn't find a bomb, like, explosion, <laughs> like that's a, a bigger problem. Their, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Crazy. The FBI also coordinated an aerial search using fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard along the entire flight path. Although numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies were sighted and investigated, nothing relevant to the hijacking was ever found in their searches anyway. They found plastic and just determined it was not because of him? Apparently. Weird. I know. Crazy. And there's more evidence and we can get into that later, but for now, throughout their initial searches, like, they really didn't find anything. That's amazing. So remember, this happened in November, so it was basically almost the winter time. Pretty cold, especially in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, when the spring thaw occurred, so a season and a half had to go by before they went out there again. That's true. Um, but the FBI took out 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with Air Force personnel and National Guardsmen and civilian volunteers. And they conducted another thorough ground search of the whole county that I listed above to try to find him, and they didn't find anything. But two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. It was later identified that it was the remains of a female teenager who had been abducted and murdered several (gasps) weeks before. Wait, a skeleton? Doesn't it take a really long time for someone to become a skeleton? I don't think so. Not out in the elements. Yeah, so my only... Oh my gosh! My only, like, reason determining factor of being so confident with my answer there is that (laughs) Dakota and I have researched antler hunting, and that's the only, like, decomposing forest item I've ever been interested in finding before. Fair. And... Something I've learned about antler hunting is that if you go out into the forest looking for them, like um, antler sheds of mm-hmm. deers and whatever, is that like animals in the forest like to eat them because they're yeah, really my good. dog will like well, yeah, bring them from the forest. Or yeah, ex- yeah, stuff like that. So I imagine the decomposition of a body, a human body, would probably be pretty tasty to some Jeez. animals out. Wait, in the forest. so she was in an abandoned shelter and she was a teenager? Yeah, she was oh. abducted and murdered. So I don't have anything on that story, but I just thought that was a crazy fact. And I told you how that this story had me thinking up a very (laughs) weird theory or just a weird thought, string of thoughts in general, which I was telling Mackenzie earlier. I was like, what if everybody like in the last 20 years that had either gone missing or murdered or there was like foul play involved all of a sudden, like a smoke signal rose from their (laughs) grave so we could identify and find and solve all these cold cases. Like that would Mm -hmm. be so crazy. It would be really hard to be like a police officer or involved in any types of investigations like that where you just never find the answer. That would drive me crazy. Yeah, seriously. So all in all, it is arguably the most extensive and intense investigation in u.s history really yes for one guy yes and it uncovered no significant material evidence Ugh. i guess at least they solved that other murder case yeah true well i guess we don't know if it was solved but they knew she was murdered and abducted so anyway crazy stuff crazy so a month after the hijacking the fbi distributed lists of the serial numbers of the bills to financial institutions casinos racetracks and just really any businesses that 
see a lot of cash flow uh, and then to law enforcement agencies as well. And Northwest Orient offered a 15% reward of the recovered money up to $25,000, which was crazy to me because that made me realize that they actually paid the ransom money. I assumed it was the FBI or, you know, that it came from somewhere else, but the airline actually paid that money, which... I thought it was cool that they were willing to do that to keep everyone safe. Seriously. But in early 1972, they released the serial numbers to the general public. And that same year, there were two men who used counterfeit $20 bills printed with those serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker, which is crazy because it sounds like they actually got that money. Yeah. <laughs> so people were doing some crazy stuff because of this. And in early 1973, the ransom money still missing, different people were offering rewards for any bills that could be recovered. So the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person who turned in a ransom bill. In Seattle, the Post-Intelligencer made a similar offer with the $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving of 1974, so three years later, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. In 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airline's $180,000 claim on the ransom money. So the airline ended up getting most of that money back. That's nice. Yeah, so it was nice. They did the right thing and... I guess they got some insurance money in the end. The physical description um, offered up by the two flight attendants who spent the most time with him still remains unchanged and is considered reliable, which makes sense not to question that. So his description is that he's 5 feet 10 inches tall to 5 feet 11 inches tall and 170 to 180 pounds and has close set piercing brown eyes and swarthy skin. I don't know what that means. Me either. But that is a very average man by that description so far. Agreed. Only four pieces of evidence, two definite and two potential, have been linked to this case. And that's from between 1978 and 2017. Wow. In 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs on the 727 was found by a deer hunter in a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, Hmm. which is well north of Lake Merwin, but within Flight 305's basic flight path. So in theory, when he opened the door... That would be, I think, near the door. Could you imagine? And it could blow Cramming out. for that. You're like, how to open stairs on plane. Flies out of your hand uh, <laughs> while you're trying to jump out the stairs. Start and buttons. Yeah. Oh, Ugh. my God. This is kind of a weird side note. But at one point, <laughs> I was on um, a private jet. And in the back, there was a bathroom. And I could not figure <laughs> out how to close the dang door on the bathroom or I've- open it. And so I ended up having to not go to the bathroom the whole flight because I could not you figure didn't it out. Ask someone. Okay, I will say I have been on the same airplane and it's not easy. I asked someone. Did you really? There was someone sitting nearby and I was like, hey, do you know how to close these? And they were like, oh, you push this really weird thing that doesn't look like a button. Yep. Yep. On the door. Yep. So now I know. But also in that bathroom, there is something that essentially says, like, exit. Yeah. <laughs> and I have always, I've never <laughs> opened sucked that. out the pot. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know what this is to, and I'm not going to take any chances. Yeah. So anyway, point being, planes are confusing. Mm-hmm. Buttons are scary. I could imagine him having these instructions makes a lot of sense. He sounds like he's done a lot of planning. Yeah, <laughs> it does. But I would imagine they also come on the airplane. True. 
Uh, so anyway, that's some evidence. Also, here's a really cool one. So in February of 1980, 80-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and about 20 miles southwest of Ariel, one of the known areas where Cooper may have landed. He discovered three packets of the ransom cash. What? As he raked the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled by their rubber bands. I didn't... How... I guess salt water could make it disintegrate. Well, this was a river. Columbia River? Would that be River, not ocean. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. In my head, I was thinking ocean because Vancouver's near the ocean. We'll get there, actually. Okay. FBI... Great. I know. It's, so it's like the only actual, like, solid evidence, right? Um, so anyway, the FBI wow. technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom money. Oh, my gosh. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 hmm. all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. Isn't that so cool? Wow, so he so ended up to keep some. Yeah, so that's like true treasure hunting. He Like, the pictures of this money, imagine someone took a dollar and ran it through a washing machine <laughs> 35 times and then lit it on fire. That's what the money looks like and Whoa. being paid out for that money. That's true because you can just take it to the grocery store yeah. and buy stuff with it. So he actually got valid cash for just That's digging cool. in the sand. Because yeah, I could see why you'd be like, I'm not turning this in. Yeah. And so good for him for doing it, but also it's probably worthless in its condition. So yeah. I think that's the right thing. Exactly. Some good karma points. Yeah. The FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 mm -hmm. for about $37,000. <gasps> Whoa. To date, none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. Their serial numbers remain available online for public search, and the Columbia River ransom money and the Air Star instruction placard remain the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found outside of the aircraft. That's unbelievable. I know. And of course, in a river that flows, like, yeah. that doesn't help as much as you might think it would yeah well but also like i'm trying to imagine what like how he contained the cash did he have a bag that he had to hold on to like how did it well yeah so just i do know this part so he had it in whatever bag they gave it to him in oh, and then fair. at a certain point we'll talk more about the parachutes but i know for a fact he used some of the pieces from the other parachutes to tie the money bag closed so when he jumped out the money didn't go fluttering everywhere Weird. So he used the parachutes as like scraps. <laughs> yeah. Well, because he had, if you remember, he asked for four of them. I'm still trying. Yeah. That still doesn't make sense to me, but that's okay. Any of the logic behind any of this describes perfectly why it's a mystery and yeah. why it has never been solved and why it's so confusing and, and why he out. probably got away with it. Yeah. So weird. Crazy. And then the last piece was found in 2017 by a group of volunteer investigators. Um, and it's only potential evidence, but it appears to be a decades-old parachute strap. Oh. This was followed later in August of 2017 with a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack. And that's it. Wow, that's pretty, pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's teensy, eensy, itty-bitty tiny. 
in the grand scheme of things because the Pacific Northwest is vast and Mm -hmm. huge. And a lot of it people don't actually live in. Yes. So it's crazy that they would ever even touch something that he had touched. I I mean, I just love the money story part because, like, could you imagine, like – I feel like it's everyone's childhood dream to like find buried treasure and oh, like doing that and being a part of this story in any way is just like go 80 year old Brian now is your time to That's shine. True. <laughs> He's just like I'm going to leave $37,000 to my grandkids. <laughs> He's like feeling all excited so. That's cool. That's anyway. So cool. But that's it which again. That's amazing. This and is insane. like the coolest mystery story ever. Yeah. And as far as other things that they looked into, they looked for DNA as well. And in late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from three organic samples found on his uh, clip-on tie in 2001. So 30 years later. And yes, he wore a clip-on tie. tie. (laughs) So So. we can take out any sort of fashion sensibilities or (laughs) class from his... uh, profile so here. uh yes <laughs> he did have a clip on tie um but they couldn't confirm for sure that the dna was actually his dna um they said it's difficult to draw firm conclusions from the samples and again this like we don't know much about the technology they use for dna samples but by the time they figured this out it had been 30 years so who yeah. knows what is still usable the bureau also made public a file of previously unreleased evidence including cooper's 1971 plane ticket which was priced at 20 dollars <laughs> paid in cash <laughs> oh i crave that to be my reality now i wouldn't be home i would be somewhere else right now all the time <laughs> yep like just the, the weekend case. like oh, i'm just gonna pay 20 dollars to fly to portland sorry yep. yep sounds amazing for dinner or whatever yeah that's cheaper than some dinners. He <laughs> seriously. Um, but they also posted the previously unreleased composite sketches and fact sheets, along with the request to the general public for information that might lead to Cooper's positive identification. Um, but as we know, nothing came of that. Um, so then remembering that he had demanded four parachutes, so two primaries and two reserve parachutes, um, they disclosed that Cooper chose the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute. So that could have had something to do with maybe what he was familiar with or if he'd, you know, parachuted before what he had used in the past that he went with something older because I, I wouldn't normally assume that that would be the first choice. Yeah, my guess or speculation about that would be maybe when he was learning to parachute or something he learned maybe 10 years ago and is used to an older parachute and again this could be reading way too far into it and maybe he just <laughs> liked the color of a different parachute That's wanted true. to be cooler or something <laughs> like that but also if he was trained further back he wouldn't mm-hmm. be familiar with newer parachutes and you could use some deductive reasoning to maybe figure out why he would make that decision mm-hmm Yeah, and then of the two reserve parachutes, there was a regular parachute and a dummy parachute. So an unusable unit with an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstrations. And it was clearly marked to identify that (laughs) to even an any experienced skydiver that it was not functional. Do not take me into the sky. (laughs) I will kill you. Stay away. Basically. um, And so one thing that they basically concluded in their evidence was that he must not have been a very experienced skydiver because he took the dummy with him. So uh, who knows if he needed it or not. Maybe that's part of the reason he was never found. But (laughs) yeah, they sent him with a dummy and then apparently realized it later yeah uh yeah 
And then they said that he uh, used the other reserve parachute, the functioning one, for parts basically to, they think, tie the money bag shut Mm -hmm. and tie it to himself, which they think is what the flight attendant saw him doing, tying something around his waist. So, yeah. Um, The FBI stressed, though, that the inclusion of the dummy reserve parachute, one of the four, obtained was an accident. Yeah. So it looks like there were a lot of dummies in this situation. A lot of dummies. <laughs> a parachute, <laughs> some FBI agents, and one hijacker. All a little bit of a dummy. <laughs> yep. But I was thinking about it, and who knows who grabbed the skydiving parachutes, because this was a holiday, or the eve of a holiday. Yeah, true. So they might have just, like, gone there uh, using their police authority and just went in and grabbed some mm-hmm. and maybe didn't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, But anyway, it was an accident. Um, And then in November of 2011, they announced that particles of pure titanium had also been found on the tie. They went on to explain that titanium was much rarer in the 70s and was at that time found only in metal fabrication or production facilities or at chemical companies using it. So usually combined with aluminum to store extremely corrosive substances. The findings suggested that Cooper could have been anything from a chemist to an engineer or a manager, uh, the only employees who wore ties in such facilities at that time. Mm. Clip-on ties. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, That would be working in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant. Um, He also could have worked at a company that recovered scrap metal from those types of factories. In January of 2017, it was reported that rare earth minerals such as cerium and strontium sulfide had also been identified among particles from the tie. The only rare applications for such elements in the 1970s was Boeing's supersonic transport development project, suggesting that possibly Cooper was a Boeing employee, which would make so much sense because he knew so much about airplanes and parachutes and the whole industry so it makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. cooper appeared to be familiar with the seattle area and may have been an air force veteran based on testimony that he recognized the city of tacoma from the air as the jet circled the puget sound and his accurate comment to one of the flight attendants that the mccord afb was approximately 20 minutes driving time from the seattle tacoma airport regular civilians would not know that so it's obvious that he's very familiar with the area similar to us i would say i mean we don't live over in seattle or portland Mm -hmm. but i feel like we visited enough at this point where even if you're from rural pacific northwest you're pretty familiar with Mm -hmm. you could identify the space needle and maybe the puget sound yeah well even still so if we're deducting that maybe he is more of a professional based on what you've already talked about if he had to travel for work and those things, he would be pretty well-traveled and true. know his stuff. According to the FBI's retired chief investigator, extortionists and other criminals who steal large amounts of money nearly always do so because they need it urgently. Mm. Otherwise, the crime isn't worth the risk. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Alternatively, Cooper may have been a thrill seeker who made <laughs> the jump just to prove that he could do it, which... I don't know who he's trying to prove to. <laughs> I like that idea better that it's like this like adventure yeah. junkie kind of just seeing what he can do. I mean, it's not good to threaten people's lives and those sorts of things with like yeah. a bomb, but like taking a joyride and jumping out of a plane, stealing some money kind of <laughs> sounds like an epic adventure. I guess, That yeah. some man had dreamed up to feed his ego or something. Fair enough. Yeah. Evidence suggests that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying, technique, aircraft, and terrain. He demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more hostages to jump Mm. with him. 
thus ensuring he would not deliberately be supplied with sabotaged equipment. (laughs) As we learned, he got a dummy bag, so sorry, good thing he didn't take hostages. Also, he probably chose the 727 aircraft because it was ideal for a bailout type of escape um, because it had the stairs in the back and apparently its three engines were higher set. So when he jumped out of the plane, he wasn't likely to, I don't know, I guess you'd get sucked in or burnt or fried. I don't know what would happen, but there was some thought probably taken into the consideration of what plane he chose to hijack. Do they advertise when you buy a plane ticket what type of plane you're going to be yes, on? Yes, they do. Oh. Well, I've never paid attention. I think but they also do. who knows in the 70s it's, probably. Oh, yeah, I guess I'm not sure. They might the not 70s. need more. They do. Do they? Yeah. Okay. Pretty sure. Anyway, also something interesting about the plane is it had a single point fueling capability, a hmm. then recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single fuel port. Oh. So apparently he had it in mind that he knew, I mean, as yeah, we know, it was that. his plan to land and refuel to get to Mexico. So again, that could have been a strategy. Interesting. It also had the ability to remain slow in a low altitude without stalling. And Cooper knew how to control his airspeed and altitude without entering the cockpit where he could have been overpowered by the pilots. Mm-hmm. In addition, Cooper was familiar with important details such as the appropriate flap setting at 15 degrees. Um, which apparently was unique to that aircraft. Oh. And he also knew the typical refueling time. Yeah, unless he worked in the industry, those are some really obscure things to even think to research. (laughs) And uh, I just get exhausted thinking about anybody researching anything without the internet. I'm just like... (laughs) True. Like, screw it. I don't need (laughs) $200,000. I just like... I don't care this much about planes. I don't care this much about the terrain in the Pacific Northwest. I'm just going to go buy some coffee. And you know, sit that's somewhere. another good point. He would have to know, because he was going to land somewhere. Yeah. He would have to know, like, how to use a compass and basically possibly be in the wild for however long and with his luck he probably studied mexico and like did not study this area at all so who knows wow who knows he also knew that the staircase in the back could be lowered during the flight and this is a fact that was never disclosed to civilian flight crews Mm. since there is no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit. Oh. Some of this knowledge was virtually unique to the CIA. Whoa. Yeah. So again, it kind of dwindles down, dwindles down, dwindles down mm-hmm. how he could have got this information. Also, something that just crossed my mind is maybe, maybe he has the inside scoop because he worked for an airline company or something like that. But what if... Instead of researching, he just bought a lot of $20 flights on this type of plane Mm -hmm. and just, like, watched it like a hawk. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was thinking he must have ridden various airplanes enough to at least know the procedures. Yeah. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. Um, And then the last tidbit is in addition to planning his escape he retrieved the note that he wrote so the one that said i have a bomb Mm -hmm. on it he somehow while the flight attendant was going up to the cockpit to tell the pilots what was going on so they could report the like mechanical fake mechanical issues to (laughs) the crew yeah 
he was able to get the note out of her belongings and back into his possession so that they couldn't do analysis on his handwriting. Mm. Yeah, that's really crazy. And looking at some of their theories, it varies from being him being really planned out to not super planned out. Um, one thing they talked about as well was that maybe it was a suicidal jump in the end whether he oh. didn't think he was going to get away with it or you know maybe he realized that. he had a dummy no he wouldn't have taken the <laughs> dummy um so yeah maybe he just decided this isn't gonna work well once he probably accepted the fact that he couldn't refuel again because there's true. just be too many hours passed where mm-hmm. the fbi could plan for his true like arrival that he was like, you know what? I'm just going to try. And if I die, I die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was one thing that was discussed, especially when looking at the fact that just where they found some of that money in Tina Bar, it was discussed that maybe he lost the ransom money during his descent and maybe, I don't know, <laughs> gave I'm just up. imagining he jumps out <laughs> and all of a sudden the like belt unties with the money and then he just decides not to deploy his it's parachute like, and just it. like calmly <laughs> floats to the earth to oh, his death and gosh. is just like not worth it. Yeah, I don't know. I that can you imagine though losing it during like after all that and getting almost away with it? So yeah, that was discussed. Another thing that was discussed was maybe he dumped the ransom money knowing he could never get away with spending it, mm-hmm. which that part makes a lot of sense to me because with the way they were looking for it, I, I don't see how he could ever, you know, just put it in the bank or yeah. spend it anywhere. Especially, and that, that yeah. corroborates the fact that maybe he was doing it just for thrill seeking. Mm-hmm. Like maybe he was an executive, maybe at Boeing or he was a chemist. Felt Heck, like maybe he, he designed the stinking airplane. Yeah. And so maybe he was just kind of bored with his life and was like, you know what? I want one final epic mm-hmm. adventure. I'm well, who knows? Maybe crazy. he was suicidal anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You never know. Yeah. Um, one thing that I... I can't believe I didn't think of this. One thing they also looked into was people that went missing that weekend. Mm. And that came up with nothing, which is crazy. Because if you think about, you know, the Pacific Northwest, anyone who would have known him. Well, and if he had a job where he had a tie, hello. Yeah. and Where were you on Monday? (laughs) Who knows? So there were no matching reports of a missing person. Um, One thing that was discussed, which this just sounds too crazy, was that uh, he safely landed you know with his parachute and uh realized he couldn't spend the money dumped it and then just you know made his way back home and went to work <laughs> like that is too crazy to me that he that's somehow... too epic like he's too cool to like not have like figured out a way to get away with it but mm-hmm. also write a book about it and become a millionaire because Fair. he's so cool <laughs> yeah because it was also discussed that maybe he did plan on getting away with it and just going back to work on Monday? Like, I don't know. Yeah. So there's a lot of what ifs as far as either what his plan was or what, you know, how his plans changed midway. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. But yeah, and one thing that they discussed was his attire because they said if he was planning ahead, he would have maybe ended up hitchhiking and he had better luck getting picked up in a suit than he would have in plain old jeans and a t-shirt. Hmm. But again, that's like... A little bit yeah. specific We can't for me. give... He's a criminal. Let's not give him that much uh, credit. You know what <laughs> I mean? He picked the dummy parachute. How e- smart could he be? <laughs> exactly. Um, but they were skeptical uh, and concluded that his lack of crucial skydiving skills and experience um, 
you know, originally they said they thought he was an experienced jumper, maybe even a paratrooper. Um, but based on several things, they figured that after years of searching and some of the specifics that he looked at, no experienced parachutist would have jumped at, you know, pitch black in the night, in the rain, 172 miles an hour with wind in his face wearing loafers. <laughs> like, yeah. All these things were just too risky. So there's no way that he was an experienced skydiver. One thing I thought was interesting, they said that he also failed to request or bring a helmet not something i would have thought about <laughs> yeah i mean i never think about jumping out of planes in any regard even mm-hmm. for fun for pleasure for i don't know any other reason yeah the helmet mm-hmm. part if he was a practiced jumper out of airplaner he would be worried <laughs> about his brain smacking the ground i think yeah Yep, but the FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive his jump. Diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never even opened his chute. Even if he did land safely, agents contended that survival in the mountainous terrain at the onset of winter would have been almost impossible without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. This would have required a precisely timed jump, necessitating in turn cooperation from the flight crew, and there's no evidence that Cooper requested or retrieved any such help from the crew, nor that he had any clear idea where he was when he jumped in the stormy overcast darkness. So all in all, there were 15 copycat hijackings similar to Cooper's, but they I were- I swear, hearing about stuff like this just makes people like- Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. And think they can do it too. Yep. Um, but they were all unsuccessful. <laughs> Um, I didn't read through all of the copycats, but all the ones I read were like, hijacked plane successfully, asked for ransom money, got it, got caught a day later, or got caught instantly when landed. Or I did see there was one who uh, actually did lose their money in the air. Oh, free money, make it rain. (laughs) I hope that happens over my house. Yeah, so... uh, There's a lot of ways to be unsuccessful. Yeah. Um, But anyway, with the huge upswing in people hijacking planes all of a sudden um they started constituting universal luggage searches in 1973 so the next year i hadn't even considered the fact that he just took a bomb on an airplane yeah and that they weren't searching bags at all yeah i like to think of like original flight travel a lot like a bus Mm -hmm. like it's magical because you're up in the sky but also it's like it's kind of like you're on a bus because yeah, they're small true. and they're smelly. There's lots of random people on there. Mm-hmm. Dreams. Dreams. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this helped a ton with hijackings because it's way, way, way harder to get any mm-hmm. sort of material that you could use on the plane to threaten people enough to control the plane. At one point, my dad had nail clippers taken away. Yep. Security. Like you, although I did several times, well, two layovers going through customs and everything, did accidentally take pepper spray with me and back home on a flight recently. Success. So it's hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I mean, maybe it was under eight ounces. So I don't know. I mean, was, it was. It, was it your carry-on or check bag? Carry-on. Oh, well. It's and I had to go day. through security twice because of customs. Huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. So it can still happen. <laughs> so airports are secure, not the most secure. They'll take your see. nail clippers, but not your pepper spray. Exactly. Anyway, this was super fun to talk about. My theory is he died. (laughs) Yeah, mine too. I think he died. (laughs) Um, But I also love the fact that there is still possibly buried treasure in cash money form out in the forest somewhere where if you Pretty close to our home. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe we could go camping this summer and go see if we can dig some holes. Maybe we could float some rivers and (laughs) look for some money and be a part of the mystery. So... I had a lot of fun covering this in the movie. 
without a paddle is hilarious and kind it was of, fun it was a good cheap it. laugh so yeah. i would recommend it uh to get you familiarized a little bit with the story in a fun way and then uh maybe listen to our podcast more and listen to our full podcast and then watch the movie yeah then you'll have all the context. But before you go watch the movie, subscribe to our podcasts. You can subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to hear us again next week. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have information to add to this week's topic, please email us at friendsfascinated at gmail.com to be featured at the beginning of a future episode. We can't wait to blow your mind with more curiosities next week. You've just listened to another episode of Friends Fascinated. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.